What is happening, everybody? We are coming at you with part two of a conversation we started back in January. There's a lot to discuss, so let's just get into it. Let's grab life by the controller. Ladies and gentlemen, it is with great pleasure that we finally get some closure on our discussion of the rise and fall of Atari. And who better to have this discussion with than the one that we started it with, Ultra Golden Ant. How are we doing, brother? I'm doing quite well. It's been a while. I've been waiting to continue on with this because, as I've said, it didn't just cause Atari to fall. It was the video game crash of 1983. So everybody was affected by this, but Atari probably got it the most. Well, I don't know, because some of the other consoles were pretty much gone by then. They, they were able to, they were hanging on by a thread, if anything. Yeah, I think the biggest casualty of this whole thing was Atari. Uh, a- absolutely. And um, if you guys remember last time we talked about how they oversaturated with uh, cartridges of, like, there was, third parties were allowed to make as many games as they wanted to the point where there were probably more games than consoles out there. Uh, how we talked about Pac-Man and how the port of Pac-Man that they put out was garbage. Yeah, how it wasn't even finished. It was the demo that the creator made to show Atari, and Atari just ran with it. Right, yeah, there was so much wrong. and Because, yeah, nobody, want, nobody wants to play that port of Pac-Man, and it was out before it was ready, and everybody was excited for it, but they lost so much money because they made way too many cartridges thinking that people were going to buy Ataris, and, then, and the opposite happened. Well, and so if, about, if everyone well, remembers, uh, the video game industry, the revenues peaked at $3.2 billion in 1983. Think about how much money that is in 1980. I mean, that's a lot of money now, but well, think back then. It was then 3. It, 3. It, it $3.2 That was $3.2 billion. Remember when I put up two, when I said it was $2 million, I was like, it was like, a two, I think the profit was about $2 billion. It was $3.2 billion in revenue, but it was about a $2 billion profit. So they made a bunch. They were printing money. Yes. I mean, uh, one of the things that I, I actually found out doing research for this part of the episode is in Japan, it was called the Atari Shock. Because Atari shook everything in Japan with, with that crash. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it caused a lot of problems. And the thing about Atari, not only were they making too many games, um, I uh, hinted on it in the prior episode. Another problem that they, you know what else Atari ran into in ColecoVision and all those other, all the early people in the console wars, they were starting to take on another opponent, the early stages of PC gaming. Well, and the funny thing is Atari actually created a personal computer. Yeah, they had the Atari ST. Yeah, they were competing against themselves. Right, and because well, here's the thing about PC gaming, um, the big one, which is the biggest selling uh, PC ever, the Commodore sixty four. Um, there was the Apple II, the TRS eighty. What the hook there was? Hey, kids, 
you can do your homework and get all your schoolwork done on the computer, and then you can play video games. And they had a lot of the same games that Atari had and that ColecoVision had. They had, um, you know, Mario Brothers, you know, the, little, the plumbing version, and Donkey Kong. They had games that looked more, that, that resembled more arcade caliber. It's true. Like, yeah, the games looked a lot better on the Commodore 64 than they did on the Atari. Well, so, and not just that. I mean, and I don't want to jump ahead, but for anyone who just pops in and out while they're they're working, uh, you know, because I do that with the podcast that I listen to. But the Commodore 64 survived the crash. It did. Because and it, it did. Because the reason why you can think about it, why them and Apple II and a couple of those can stick around was you don't know you don't just need computers at home, you need computers at schools too. So a lot of schools like the Boys and Girls Club I went to, they used Commodore 64s. A lot of places, a lot of schools well, were using Commodore 64s and Apple II, so it was able to help them survive and go on a little bit longer because their stuff ran, it looked more of like, you know, what you would expect on a on Nintendo. Yeah. So Atari was dealing with that. And like I said, it was a great hook because you have a computer, it, it, like I said, and PC gaming is still a popular thing today. And it, but people can give the roots, the roots of it are with the Commodore, are definitely in the Commodore 64. And that hurt Atari and that hurt console gaming because the computer, the computer was basically an educational toy. It was a video game system disguised as an educational toy. Kind of like how the PlayStation 2 was a game console disguised as a DVD player. Or was it a DVD player disguised as a game console? Exactly. <laughs> For a lot of people, it made more sense to spend an extra 20 bucks to buy a PlayStation 2 than it did to just buy a DVD player. That was my only DVD player for years. Was a PlayStation Two. It was not my first DVD player. Was a PlayStation Two. Hey, mine too. I didn't need it. I'm like, hey, I can buy video games and I can buy DVDs at the same CD warehouse. How about that? Yeah, and the great thing about that is backwards compatibility. I had the PS2. It played my DVDs. It played my limited selection of PS2 games, and it played my amazing library. Of PlayStation of discs. Ones, yeah. And you could right. upscale them slightly. I mean, the, the magazines made it seem like it was going from PS1 to PS3, but it, you take what you can get. Right, right. Now, as we continue on, Atari had to figure out something. And they, and they, and they thought that they had it. They thought they had their savior. So, July of 1982. And, you know, this, this is just, this is, this is happening... Five months before I was born, guys. July of 1982, Atari paid 25 million bucks for the rights to a to a blockbuster film to make a video game for it. And what is that game, Donnie? I want to say it's E.T. Yes, it is E.T. And... Like we, like I said in the last episode, the thing about it is, is that while Parker Brothers and a lot of the bigger companies had uh, money to buy the games based off of movies, a lot of them were never really that good. This was one of the first times that Atari bought the rights themselves 
to make this movie or to make this game based on this hit movie. And everybody's thinking, oh, man, there's no way this can fail, right? <laughs> well, and the reason why they did it is they already had a good relationship with Steven Spielberg mm-hmm. with Indiana Jones. Right, right. So, like yeah, they had- last time, that was the very first video game based off of a movie. It was, yeah, Indiana Jones. So this was going to be a big deal. We're going to get E.T. out, and it'll be ready in time for Christmas. They wanted it, you know, like when they bought the rights, they... But when they wanted it out in time for Christmas, the problem is, is that they gave the manufacturer, they gave the person who did E.T., they wanted it, Atari wanted it done in six weeks. And the designer that, I I absolutely love his work. I really do. He's a great programmer. Uh, E.T. kind of ruined his reputation. But the fact that Howard Scott Warshaw could do this in less than six weeks. He did it in only five and a half. That is pretty freaking amazing. If I agree. I can only imagine, though, what if they had just given him more time? Yeah, if they would have had it out to be the summer blockbuster game, give the movie a chance to be out and get a, a following and then... You know, have him work through the Christmas season. Yeah, I know they want money because money rules everything. But their inaction for action caused them to shoot themselves in the foot. Instead of giving them six weeks, maybe they should have started them earlier and given them more time. It's just, if you bought the rights in July, you you had about five, six months to make something happen. But in that five, six months, that's your development. That's your artist making the uh, the box art, the cart art, and having everything go into production. And they produced millions of these carts. They so did. how long were they producing them for? That's true. That's true. So they're thinking, you know, come Christmas time, E.T.'s out. Kids will be watching ET at home with their families on Christmas Day, you know, if it's or if it's still in theater. Because back then, movies used to be in theater so much longer before they came out on video, and you know, people were gonna watch the movie some more, the movie ET, and then go play the video game ET on Christmas morning, and then and then they played the game. I remember when I played it, and I just said, I was like, I was like, what is this? What am I supposed to do? <laughs> How do I get out of these holes? No, no, no. Don't touch me. Yeah. I, I was like, I quit after about maybe 10 minutes. Like, when I see you guys all playing there for that long, I'm like, why are you even wasting your time? See, and the funny thing is, I played and, the and then I of this game. I, it didn't bother me one bit. My cousin had it. I didn't have it. But my cousin had it, and I would play it at his house. And we would sit glued for hours on end. We had no idea what we were doing. We had no idea how to beat it. We had no idea how to phone home. And that was because we wanted, we wanted resolution in the game. I never got it. I still haven't got it. Yeah, a lot of those movie-based games, like I remember playing the old Superman game, and I'm like, what am I supposed to do? I mean... Once you look at tutorials, you're like, okay, well, this stuff's pretty easy. But, yeah, a lot of it, 
I can see why kids are probably like real angry come Christmas. Especially imagine some kid who unwraps their gifts and their mom got them both E.T. and Pac-Man. Oh, lordy. Thinking that they they got the two hottest games on the system. Even though I'm guessing the word would have been out by then about Pac-Man. Yeah, but if you had parents that weren't tech-savvy and they were just like, hey, I've seen this in the arcade, it's on sale, let's get it. It's on sale, yeah. Oh, by then you know Pac-Man was in the bargain bins. Oh, yeah, it was like... Yeah, by a, then. $1.28. Yeah, it's like here. Just get, just get Pac-Man. Everybody likes Pac-Man, right? That song Pac-Man Fever is popular. Yeah, I played Pac-Man at Pizza Hut last week, so let's just get it. And then they're told, you know, this is one of the one of those horrible games. Yeah, they, they play Pac-Man and they're like, oh, well, we're done with this crappy game. Let's put in E.T. instead. And all of a yeah. sudden. You're like, why does Santa Claus hate me? Why did Santa Claus bring me garbage? With E.T., they made so many of them. Some people wonder, well, what happened to all those extra cartridges that they made? I'm glad there was a rumor. Uh, At the very end of the last episode, and it's been since January, life has hit hard. Uh, We... For a while, we stopped doing the podcast every week. Uh, stress, you know, all that stuff, and then having to move. And so, really, that's why it's taken so damn long to get to where we are here. Uh, I am grateful that we have a decent podcast set up. Thank you to our Patreon members for the support. Uh, your money has gone into making the robot voice go away. But we were talking about where Peaches, her parents came from. They came from Alamogordo, New Mexico. And the thing that's funny about that is they are known for uh, nuclear bombs and they're known for their landfill. What is so special about their landfill, Ant? What's so special about their landfills that there was long a rumor, a rumor for a long time that all the unsold cartridges of the game E.T. were buried in this desert in that landfill. You know, they thought somebody just made it up and that it was just, you know, a bunch, just, just, you know, just a story. But little did they know, right? Little did they know, right, Donnie? Well, and it's funny because everyone's like, why did it take so long for these diggers to actually go in and find these carts? It's because there's nuclear stuff in that landfill, and they had to get it everything mapped out and zoned. It took years for them to plan this out so they wouldn't dig into something because it was, what, 20 feet down, and then it had concrete poured over the top of it, and they, they had really, to be absolutely They really didn't want anybody certain. to find that game. <laughs> well, would you want to find it? I, I can see it now. Like, I'm just imagining. I'm imagining, like, the higher up with one of those hard hats on his head and his suit on. Like, you make sure nobody, yeah, nobody I could dead. ever find I want his dead. family dead. I want his friends dead. His pets dead. I want them gone. Like, if he could, like, 
like if you're sitting there putting cement and concrete on top of it, it's almost like if he could, he would go to every house where that game exists and just take the game and <laughs> throw it in there also. Like, just get rid of it. Yeah, if they're putting it under, they really wanted to make sure that nobody, like, we don't want any more people being forced to buy this game. Well, and like I said, I mean, it took them years and years to plan this dig because there's nuclear waste there and they didn't want any of the people digging to get sick or or die from it because E.T. is not worth dying for or getting sick over. Uh but yeah, they, what was it, uh, 2014, 2015, something like that, they finally did a dig. There was a really good documentary done on it. Uh, and not only did they dig some of them up, people were bringing their old Ataris there and playing the game and everything. Yeah, it was a huge they still deal. Worked. A lot, like, a bunch of the carts still worked. I mean, they found, like, a ton of different Atari games. Uh, from the research that I have found, E.T. was the most prominent cart there. Oh, so there were more. There were more. There, I, there didn't were about, like, I didn't know that. There were almost a million cartridges that were found. And, and they were various games, but the majority of them were E.T. Uh if you watch that documentary, it's on YouTube. I can't remember the name. Uh, the full thing, it's like an hour and 14 minutes long. Uh, don't don't quote me on that. I, I don't have everything up in front of me anymore. But they, they decided, and I don't know where they got the information from, because like I said, I don't have it up in front of me anymore. But most of the stuff that they found probably came from one of the warehouses and it was just a straight dump. Okay. We've lost billions of dollars. Let's, let's get rid of everything. Nobody's going to have anything for free. Nobody's going to have anything for cheap. We are just going to go away. Uh, And by the end of, by winter of 1982, Atari itself had 50% drop in sales. From 1981, like they had lost half of their their base. Well, it was by 85. There was a drop off of about 97 percent in the and, industry. And that's the thing. Going and then going into 1983, it wasn't going to get any better. Not for them. Not for anybody. PC gaming would kind of thrive, but ColecoVision was in trouble, and television was in trouble. Atari, they even put out. Remember, they had the seventy eight hundred come out, and here we're, now here and here and that and that in itself presented a problem. Do you know what the problem was there? Problem with the seventy eight hundred was you got to remember it's a whole new system, right? And these yep. are these folks from that era. They're like, well, I've had television. I've had this television in my house for thirty years. You want me to buy a new video game system after two or three? Exactly. And while, and the thing about the 7800 is it looked much, much better than the 2600 games. Like it looked, a lot of their games like Galaga and Robotron uh, 29, what is that? I have it. Robotron 2090, no, 2082. Yeah, Robotron 2082. Like a lot of those games looked. Like a lot of those games looked much better on there and more arcade caliber. 
yeah, more arcade caliber. So, it, but it was just the damage had already been done in regards to the. Yeah, they had a fifty two hundred. Also, they had a daddy, and they had another system in between. Yeah, but it's just nobody was going to buy these newer systems when they had just bought the older systems, and plus. By 1983, just because of what was going on with Atari and ColecoVision and Intellivision, people just weren't buying, weren't, console gaming wasn't a thing anymore. The other problem was that everywhere at arcades, when games used to, games used to be a quarter, now they were going up to 50 cents or 75 cents or a dollar because a quarter was no longer enough to make a profit on an arcade cabinet anymore. It was... It's one of those things that everybody suffered. People, of course, were losing their jobs. and It was like there was no way to stop the bleeding. So you said over in Japan they had their own name for it? Yeah, they. it was called the Atari Shock because shock. Uh, it, it was a shockwave that went through. I mean, England didn't suffer much. Um, they didn't suffer much because they were always kind of ahead on the curve and they were in the PC gaming over there before everybody else really was. Exactly. And they were, they, you know, like I said, they were Amiga, Commodore 64, Sinclair. They had a lot of computer. They had a lot. Yeah, PC gaming was much bigger there. And I, I found out a lot of this stuff through the old Switch Gamer and The Legend of Kirk. Uh, they both have blogs that they have published. And they have really good information on the systems that they grew up with. Because we always talk about what we grew up with. I grew up Nintendo. You grew up Sega. And they grew up with uh, the Commodore 64 and stuff like that mm-hmm. before finally hitting the 16-bit era. Yeah. So that, that was how a lot of England was, um, at least the way that everyone that I personally talked to make it out to be. They also had a lot of Master System people there because their library was a lot bigger over there. It's than true. it was here. So yeah, they had a lot more math. Like the master system was a bigger deal there than the US. Yeah, they, it was just it was a different ball game. And then but yeah, over here in the US, it's just people people were getting a like people were buying a I'm, I'm sure people were buying Ataris and the games and all that cheap, but it's just no money was being made. They were probably losing money every time they sold one. Well, and speaking of money, I'm glad that you brought that up because, <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, one of the things that I find hilarious from this era is the fact that everybody would screw everybody else over. They would deliberately go out and headhunt programmers and then they would steal them from their competition. And then guess yeah. what? Uh, in television, Atari hired a bunch of their staff, and Mattel went through and sued Atari uh, for corporate or industrial espionage. Remember, we talked about this, yeah, on the last yeah. episode. I, I mean, it's just funny to me that in a time where it wasn't really regulated, everyone 
was only looking out for themselves. <laughs> yep, everybody wanted that almighty dog. And, the, and the they weren't looking <laughs> towards the future. They were looking at the, what can right I do now? now? Because they figured video games were just going to be a fad. Exactly. So and they wanted to ride trying. the wave as long as they could. Yeah, it was. They didn't know that it's a wave that you'll keep on riding. You know what I mean? So in 1980 and then in 1983, it seemed like the wave had stopped. And yeah, and when they were stealing people from the Mattel, it's because ColecoVision games looked better than Atari 2600 games. They had a better color palette. They really did. Better color palette, better packing game. They had Donkey Kong. So, you know what I mean? Atari did what they did but at this, but what it ended up happening is, it's just that, like we said, there were just way too many games. If they'd have found some way to regulate it, they would have been better off. Meanwhile, over in Japan... As they were suffering from that shock, there were some people there that were thinking that said, hey, we got to be able to. Some folks over in Japan said, hey, there has to be a way to save console gaming. And and there were two companies that were working on a way on their own attempts to save console gaming. You had uh, Nintendo with the family computer, a.k.a. the Famicom. Sega had their was putting out their system came out same day to SG one thousand, so there was there were there was something a brewing of over over there in the land of the rising sun. Am I right? It's it's true, and thank goodness there was. That's right. Now it would take some time because even the SG one thousand is innovative and as nice looking of a system as it. As it is, because I've I got a bunch of their games on my emulator. Great looking games and everything, but Nintendo with that Famicom with this family computer, and they just they said, Hey, we can put out games that are arcade caliber and will look good and all that. And and then there was just something else that was going to go on and it was all in the marketing of the system over there it seemed like they wanted it to be something that everybody can play back then it wasn't just something to sit your kids in front of and have them entertained for a bit uh you had programmers that started working at Nintendo in this time that found a way to reprogram their handheld calculators so that they could play their own games on it. I mean, these are middle-aged men that that are dying for entertainment. I mean, just sitting there working their buns off just for a game that they're going to be the only person to ever play it. Yeah, and while they're working hard and everything. Yeah, they, and these are folks that they just want something, a way to unwind after a long day of work. The the casual gamer, you know, not the hardcore gamer that plays video games eight hours a day while the rest of us go to freaking work. These are those folks that after working a nine to five, they come home, they fire, and they just come home and they fire up their, their game, they fire up whatever game system they have and they want to play it the casual gamer that they're going to buy the games that they're into, whatever genre they're into, whatever they like. 
and the casual game where you get not just kids playing, but you get mom and dad playing too. And while those games were out there, you know, like your Don, you know, the Nintendo ports of Donkey Kong and everything, there was one character who actually came from the Donkey Kong games that would make his mark and help blow the Famicom up and save the console gaming industry. And it's funny how he went from just being known as Jumpman. Jumpman, yes. To somebody who, this last Friday, uh, what is today? Today's the, so the 28th, he had a brand new video game come out. And we're, of course, talking about Mario. That's right. And that was that game. That the music, the characters, the story of saving the princess. Not only were kids playing it, but, you know, I remember being a little kid. I played it. My dad was playing it. My mom tried playing it. It was one of those things where everybody wanted to play Nintendo. My neighbor had it. And my neighbor wasn't a huge gamer. And so his mom pretty much took over his Nintendo, and she absolutely loved it. Anytime I would go over to their house, I would have to wait to play with my friend Edward until she was done playing her turns. That That is is what Nintendo did. That's what it did. And that's what it did. When it got here, when it got to the United States in 1985, and the advertising that Nintendo of America put into it, and Super Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt, and it comes with the system. We're gonna take what what's already our most popular game in Japan. And we're gonna and we're gonna give it to you for free if you buy the if you buy the system. Do you know why Nintendo really was the savior of the video game crash? Well, not only did they cater to the casual gamers to get everybody involved meaning more people will buy more games. They also did things to make sure that their own market wasn't oversaturated. Exactly. Their idea, their strategy behind it was completely the opposite of Atari ColecoVision, everything that we had over here up until Nintendo of America. That's right. Remember what was happening with Atari and all those guys? Any third party can make a video game for their system, causing the system to be oversaturated. There were no checks and balances, no quality control, no quality review. Now with With, Nintendo, what do you got to do, Donnie? Well, real fast, with Atari, if the general population liked a game, it was then milked for all it was worth. Uh, Several clones, even on the same system, came out for the game. Uh, Different colors, uh, little different sprites. It was Mm -hmm. basically multitudes of the same game on the cartridges or on the systems that we had. Nintendo's idea was we are going to make a system, we are going to regulate it, everything's going to have to go through us and get our seal of approval before it gets released so we don't have anything like this happen and damage our name. Nintendo had been out 
forever. They started off doing cards. That's right. They already had a great reputation for games, for art, and for this immersive story through through cards. And so when they took to the uh, console market, they implemented all that stuff, all their own checks and balances because they saw what happened and they didn't want to yeah. be a part of it. You have it where if you want to be a game on their system, you got to be licensed by Nintendo and have their seal of approval listed on it. Just like, I mean, not saying it all, that means all the games were great, but they had that seal of approval, meaning that. And they also had it to where you can only, a uh, third party can only, they would only let third parties like Konami, they might say, you can only do one game a year for us. You know, you're okay, you did Castlevania this year, you can't do another Castlevania for us or any other game. It was their way, like you said, it was their way of trying to keep it to where there were a lot of, there was a lot of variety out there, but there weren't too many games. Yeah, I I believe, if I read this right, the limitation is a publisher, you could do five games a year. Right, yeah. And Konami, one of my favorite uh, hey, I love game. Konami too. Oh, they they are great and they are smart. Because of Nintendo's regulation with this, they were busy making Castlevania games when uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles hit. So they came out with a different name. Ultra. Everything was released under Ultra. Under Ultra. And what it was, it was basically, they didn't let anybody know that it was an imprint of Konami, but they just claimed to be another company. But no, it was just, like you said, it was just an imprint of Konami, but it was a way for them to sneak and put out more games. Yeah, so they could come out with 10 quality games a year instead of just five. And I I am grateful for the people at Konami for doing that, because seriously... I absolutely love uh, Contra. I love Castlevania, uh, Gradius. Yes, and my Konami, made, Konami made some great ones. Yes, for me, it's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle series. I enjoy Castlevania. Um, I enjoy some of their classics like Russian Attack. Yeah, like you know, Contra. I just I just got the Contra collection for my PlayStation Four. Just some great running guns. I'm horrible at it, but hey, I still have fun with it. Okay, so I have a question for you. What's your question? Does the Contra code work on the PS4? I haven't tried it. You haven't tried it? Oh, that would be my first thing. I haven't tried it. And the thing is, I, sh- I should have, because a lot of codes on other video games work. You know, I mean, as long as the buttons are assigned and everything. Yeah, there's no B, there's no A, and there's no start. You've got, what, square and... X and options to use right. for those you'd, buttons. Yeah, you'd be yeah, you'd be using whatever button is the representative button of it. Yeah, and but yeah, as we see with, with 1985, this is where Nintendo, with their regulations, they saved console gaming, and Nintendo has ruled the roost ever since. We're going on 34 years. Sure, they might have some times where they're not as popular or whatever but they always come back with something brand new and innovative see and the funny thing is 
talking about Nintendo is I absolutely worshipped them during the Nintendo and the Super Nintendo era. Uh, N64 came along, and I just, to be honest, the gameplay never bothered me. Uh, sexy polygons are sexy polygons. It's right. that that freaking Trident controller that turned me away. And when PlayStation came I out... That. I enjoyed that controller. Oh, I, I can't stand that controller. I Still to this day, it's the bane of my gaming existence. Like, I got so used suck. to it. Yeah, like I had... I got so used to it after a while. It was like... It was one of those things where, yeah, I'm like, there's extra buttons. I don't know if I'd want to do it now. I'm like, it just... I had muscle memory back then to where I was all in it. See, and I was majorly invested in the Super Nintendo. So, so when my family got the N64 for Christmas, I ended up borrowing my grandma's Super Nintendo and keeping that in my, my bedroom because I had Mortal Kombat, I had Cool Spot, I had Clay Fighter, you know, linked to the past that I was emotionally invested in as a kid. I'd spent hours and hours, and then this new console comes out with this weird controller and then, seriously, the second the PlayStation came out and it was affordable, uh, they had something similar to the Super Nintendo controller. So I was instantly converted to that. <laughs> and then, now going back to when a Nintendo came out in 1985, the other thing that it did was it made the Atari look so outdated and generic. I mean, that sleek gray box... And how the graphics look compared to Atari games. Atari looks so minor league compared to Nintendo. So it kind of was one of the things that put that dagger. Even though Atari 2600 and Atari kept trying to make games up until like 1989. It's just they were no competition for Nintendo. No, and Nintendo had it right because they they were smart. It just I'm, looked I'm better. Certain... Games were cleaner. Yeah, I'm pretty certain anybody who has played the original Super Mario Brothers knows that the bushes are the same sprites as the clouds. They're just recolored. So that way, they could incorporate more stuff in without having to design new stuff and take up extra space. They That's just swapped right. color palettes. And, and you had great characters, and the yeah. enemies were interesting. Like everything and it was all like another thing that like we love about platforming was like trying to memorize and make your jumps at the right time and yeah and was... in the dungeons you had to go to the correct path otherwise you couldn't get to the quote at the end yeah uh, and on the last three worlds it did that yeah the uh, the things that they did seriously revolutionized gaming and it was leaps and bounds from what Atari was doing. And it definitely showed when you plugged it, it into your TV. Atari just, I don't know why they didn't throw in the towel soon. I mean, they kept making games. I get them props for that. And they'd even make their own ports of popular games like Double Dragon and, and all that stuff. But it just didn't. I'm like, you guys, it doesn't look good. And... Nintendo, and then you had people that were getting the Sega Master System, which was 8-bit and looked better than Nintendo, but it just didn't have that big of a market here in America. And plus, I always find their music to be pretty grating on that system, I'll admit that. 
play some Sega Master System games. You'll notice the music's kind of grating. But <laughs> well, like you said though, I mean, on some ports or you know some games like. I would much rather play Ghostbusters on the Master System than the Nintendo Entertainment System. It is just visually better looking. Same there were some Spider-Man. ports that are better. Um, yeah. Their port of Double, even everybody talks about, you know, the, the, the port of Double Dragon for NES is very popular. It's one of the most popular ports out there, even though the Sega Master System port of Double Dragon looks way better. More colors, better looking looks a little bit closer to the arcade version, even though it's better. You know what I mean? Yeah, like Master System had, they had quite a few games that it would look better than some NES ports. Just wasn't that popular of a system. We always end up talking about consoles being better in certain regions due to how they market things. Uh, I I do know it it was... It was huge in Europe because it was marketed fantastically. I did not know about the master system until about the time I started doing the podcast. Uh, and it's uh, when you told me that I kind of laughed because here's the thing. I knew about it. I didn't know anybody who had one because the master system had only been advertised. It, it only had a brief advertising period before the Genesis came out. Like, the Genesis was already, like, coming up right behind it. So not a lot of people had a Master System. They had already moved on and got a Genesis. And plus it had, the Gen- and the Genesis had that set, that uh, converter box that you can put on it so that you can play old Master System games, which I have that. That's cool fantastic. Thing. Yeah, that power-based converter to where I have it because I don't have a master system yet, but I wanted to collect master system games. So I got that converter for the Genesis. See, and honestly, I am looking into getting a converter for my Genesis just because I found out, um, I went up to, we, we have a store in Orem, uh, called game changers. They are a fantastic store. The staff is great. They're not paying me to, you know, endorse them not that my endorsement means anything but they hey, are just I'll do it here with game again so it's all good and i i went up to their salt lake store and we are actually at the tail end of the salt lake gaming convention uh slc gamecom or whatever so i went up there yesterday they have a, an entire wall dedicated to master well it's not a wall it's a section on a wall but top to bottom is just straight up master system games and yeah. i decided if i've got access to those games i want to play them so i will need to get a converter definitely and i can tell people what games to play for it and everything they had they had some there were some great games that were on that system they had um and a lot of Game Gear games are pretty much nothing but Master System games. They look they're the exact same game. So it's it's interesting. In doing research for this episode, uh, I, I know that we started in January, so it's been a huge span in between. What is the number one thing that you can take away from your research? 
Um, number one thing that you that you could take away from your that I took away from it was how you can tell that the other man, the other console people, like after Nintendo and Sega, they learned from Atari's mistakes, and I and um, I'll give Atari props for even after they crashed, even after they were falling apart, even after the crash of 1983, they kept on trying to stay in there and kept on making games and things like that, even though their stuff was outdated. Another thing that I took away from this is that people learned that you can't have, you can't oversaturate stuff, your own your own market with your own game. Don't try to corner a market. There's enough pie out there for everybody. So try to be, you know, try to be picky with who you want making games for your console because if the game gets a bad review, it, it causes your console to get a bad review. If the game's bad on your console, it makes your console look bad. You know what? I couldn't have said that better. Yeah, that's what happened with Pac-Man. Being that Pac-Man looked bad and E.T. looked bad and made the Atari 2600 look bad. The funny thing about E.T. is, in my opinion, it was Howard Scott Warshaw's, like, passion project. It was almost his love letter to Atari and to gamers. He he said that... That that game actually had some of its own Easter eggs? Yeah, it it really did. He, Howard Scott Warshaw worked on a little game called Yars Revenge. Oh, yes. Um, The hottest-selling Atari 2600 game of all time, people. Yeah, he was known for working on blockbusters. That's why he was the one that was given the go-ahead to do E.T., and so I don't know how to access it. It has something to do with one of the plants in the pit. But you do something so many times, and all of a sudden, there's the Yars Revenge uh, little fly guy thing. I think I've heard of that Easter egg. And then I've seen it. And then if you do it again, you get Indiana Jones. He's got uh-huh. two of his characters that that he's developed and you know made games for in ET and to be able to do an easter egg when you've got five and a half weeks to really buckle down and create a game to me that that man does not deserve the uh the horrible reputation that that game he doesn't he has one of the he has the biggest selling game ever for the Atari twenty six hundred in Yards Revenge. Yeah, he also has you know how it goes. Yes, he also has one of the worst games for the Atari twenty six hundred that he was responsible for. But he also was responsible for the highest selling game that they ever had on the Atari twenty six that Atari themselves ever sold. So, I. I guess it's like people will, you know, scream your failures, but whisper the accomplishment. Yeah, I mean, Yars Revenge, uh, the Atari 2600 adaptation of Star Castle, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, I have that. he I have was... He made some good games. He did, and I really... And and y'all can think of me what you want for this. I really don't think E.T. is a bad game. 
Uh, I've made Aaron go Brad play it on some of his Instagram lives. I've had uh, Peter Graphic play it, and I enjoy it. It might not be a game that you can sit down and actually beat, but you can have some laughs. You can have some have laughs. a good time yeah. while playing it. Like when I bought it at the Pittsburgh Retro Gaming Convention last year, back in 2018, because I had just bought an Atari 2600 for 30 bucks, and it came with like 10 games. And I want to, and then somebody else was selling some old Atari games, and they had ET, and it was like a dollar. And I said, "Yes, I'll buy this," because just to say that I have a copy of ET in my collection. It's something. It's a conversation piece. It's I pulled a cartridge out, and you start laughing. Yeah, like, what in the world are you doing with that? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it's one of those things where there's nothing wrong with maybe sometimes picking up one of those lame games or games that people laugh at, like Pepsi Man for PlayStation. Growl for Sega Genesis. Growl for Genesis, which I have a bootleg copy of it because I love that game. Some of and the worst actually, games are the most fun games and can give you an entertainment value that a billion dollar production game can't give you. Yeah. And thing is Growl's even not even that bad of a game. Taito did a great job in Growl. They really it, did. It's just a goofy story. Um but yeah, it's one of those things where I know like well, some people are like, hey, E. T. wasn't that bad, but then there's me, I'm like, no. That game was, guys, and just, you know, excuse my language, that game was to drizzling shits. <laughs> it was. Like, there's, you could try to make redeeming qualities for it, Donnie, but that just wasn't a good game. And this is why you are one of my great friends, is because <laughs> I can appreciate your opinion on it, and I can see where you're coming from. And then again, you can see my opinion and see where I I'm coming see, from. And it is all good. It's like, that's why I said I still have it. Because everybody can laugh at it. I remember the episode of the Goldbergs where, you know, based in the 80s, where um, Adam was happy that he had gotten that game. His mom bought it for him. And he was all excited for E.T. And then he played it and it showed him, like, you know, it showed him, like, you know, recording from when he was playing it as a kid. And him being stuck in a hole and not being able to get out and just being pissed off. And you want to know what? I love that show just because of the fact that they do use real home footage. Yes, yes. And when they talked, when he talked about E.T. on there, I said, it's cool to hear somebody's story, somebody who lived through it as a kid. That was excited for that game and then got let down. Well, my brother, we are getting about the time that we should wrap up this episode. But before we do, I want to know what you've been up to lately. What have you been playing? Oh, lately I've been, uh, you know, you guys know me. There's always a retro game in my, almost once, once or twice a week, you'll see me post pictures of a new game that I got from my collection. What I've been doing a lot of lately, um, been collecting a lot of Sega Saturn games, whether it's an original copy, um, I got some Japanese imports, and I even got some games that are uh, backups that I've been getting off of Etsy at a couple of uh, stores on there, which I tell people, if there are certain Saturn games that you feel are too expensive, if you get a mega replay with pseudo Saturn on it, get the, get the get a bootleg copy, get a backup copy that 
plays just as well. Like I just bought a copy of Metal Slug for twenty three dollars on Etsy, and it's a backup copy. But I'll take paying twenty three bucks for it over paying sixty seven to a hundred. Because hey, I'm on a budget. I got kids and. I, I find nothing wrong with having repros. So, yeah, that's what I've been doing. I've been playing a lot of um, Sega Saturn games. I've been testing out some of the new ones that I've gotten for it, like In the Hunt. I was playing Galaxy Fight on Friday. Um, I'm always adding games. Um, I got some uh, games coming in from AliExpress because everybody knows that I have no problem with getting uh, repro games. And I've still been playing um, some of the newer games. Fist of the North Star Lost Paradise. I've still been playing that. I was playing some Tekken 7 yesterday, just enjoying myself because I love my fighting games. So I've been doing a little bit of everything, and I want to thank everybody uh, for following Ultra Golden Ant for, uh, you know, for all the support, for, for everything that I do, the dank memes that you guys all laugh at and my wrestling post. Uh, I, it's much appreciated, you guys, uh, even in the nostalgia. That's what I am. I'm, I'm here to be the king of nostalgia, and I appreciate all of it. One of the things that I don't think you know, but I have had conversations with people about repros. And one of the, the points that I had somebody bring up to me, because I don't buy repros just because I don't buy a lot online, like, I don't buy anything online. I, I want to find it out in the wild because it gives me an adventure. It gives me something to do, a story oh, to tell you, later. You know me. I, I still dig out in the wild. I still oh, dig oh, out in the wild. Oh, I games. definitely know you do. But uh, I, I was talking to somebody, and we were it, – it got a little heated. And they're like, I don't think people should buy repros or be proud of them. And I said, what is the difference between buying a repro and playing it on the system that it's intended to? Or emulating it. Exactly. Or, you know, cracking your uh, PlayStation Classic and adding emulation on there and playing it through there. Like, I, I can appreciate somebody who buys a repro and is proud that it's a repro. They're not trying to pass I it off as... When I, every time I post, when I posted that copy of Metal Slug that I bought, what did I say? I'm like, hey, I got this on Etsy. Exactly. I'll say, because my whole thing is, I'm not going to go on here. and Because if I wouldn't have said that, I would have posted that picture of Metal Slug and have people say, oh, man, that's cool, man. And that thing's worth a few hundred dollars. I'm like, no, I bought the, I bought the repro. Like games that I, new Super Nintendo games of, if I don't want to spend a hundred bucks for a copy of Sonic Blast, man, yes, I'm going to buy a repro for five dollars and eighty nine cents. Exactly. Um, and you're me, playing you know, it with the controller. You're playing you know, it through the console hardware, and it and all looks the same and plays enjoy, the same. Exactly. You were able to enjoy a game that otherwise collectors would have pushed you away from. Yeah, me and uh, Artemis Crime were talking about it. Shout out to my man Artemis Crime Banner in Miami. I know he's your boy too. Right. But yeah, we were talk we were talking about buying repros and he said, you know, he's like, I got a bunch of games that are repros. I'm like, me too, because he said he's like, I collect on a budget. And I'm like, as do I. I was like, my whole thing is if it's in your collection, it's in your collection. There's no need to distinguish the two. 
It's a good way to get some original cop. It's a good way to have a copy, a cartridge copy of a game that maybe you wouldn't want to pay a hundred bucks for a copy of it. Here, here, here's a repro that looks just as good in place, just as good. In, and you have it. Nobody would know the difference if you didn't say anything. When I get my Saturn and I'm hoping to have a Saturn this year, I cannot afford symphony of the night on it. So you, and so look, and I know that and got, and then I'm going to be sitting there and I'm going to say to you, Hey, Donnie, you can get Castlevania Symphony, or you can get there, or over in Japan, that version for Saturn's called Dracula X. Yep. Just like Super And I said, I know there's a, there's a person on Etsy that sells it for $12.99. That as long as you have the pseudo Saturn Mega Replay, you can play it. And, and I, I will have to do that because there are rooms in that game that are only accessible on the Saturn port. So for me to fully experience that game, that's going to be the only way I will be able to play it. And that's what I mean. It's and that and I have no problem. There's there's nothing wrong with getting repro. I have a bunch of original Saturn games, rather from United States or from Japan, but there are those games that well, I can get the Japanese copy might be too expensive. Oh, well, I can get the repro for $15. That's awesome to me. It's like I always say, and I said this towards the end of January's episode where we started this discussion, a good game is a good game no matter the age or the console. So exactly, if you, or, or how you play it. Exactly. So if you have a chance to play something enjoy it however you get the chance as gamers we should not be snobs and hold our noses up to people who didn't have the chance to play it or don't have the means to play it you know to afford an original copy of it yeah exactly that's that's stupid that's stupid now if you a repro and you can play it on the original hardware why don't you do it or people that get multi-carts where it's 100 games in one i have a friend that he doesn't have he likes he likes having an old super nintendo but he doesn't really have the money to buy a bunch of the old games i got him that 101 card for christmas and he loves it because hey i have 100 games now that i can play and you want to know what i've got one of those for my nintendo and slowly i am able to find the games from it that I love and I now have in original glory. I don't have the boxes or the manuals, but slowly but surely I am picking up. It's it's here. Yeah. It's on this collection. Yeah. When you have a multi-cart, which I say to people, I'm like, if you're a person and you have an old, old game systems, but you don't feel like going out looking for games, but you want to play a bunch of games. Hey, why don't you get a multi-cart? It'll have all the games on it that you probably want to play, and you'll have them at your fingertips. Just, just it's just a good way for the casual retro gamer because they exist too, and they are a wonderful thing for me because doing this podcast, I love to talk about the games that I experienced growing up. I also like to talk about the games that people from our retro gaming community have turned me on to. And exactly. I didn't get a chance to play, so boom, my multi-cart 
Faxanadu is a wonderful game. A yeah, game well, um, I did not Aaron, know existed. Yeah, Aaron Gobrad was like, oh, you like beat-em-ups? Play Sonic Blast Man. That's a great game. And I didn't, I'm like, what's Sonic Blast Man? How, how come I didn't know about this game when I was a kid? It's it's always cool. Growl. Like, there are so many games out there. You can just jump down the rabbit hole of fighting games, role-playing games, sports games, arcade games, platformers, of games that you didn't get a chance to play when they were new, but you can get a chance to play now. See, and this is what I love about our community. We have people from every walk of life. Many different tastes, many different, you know, upbringings. And so they will tell me a game that they played that they have great memories with. And I will be on the hunt for it. Uh, There's plenty of games. Uh, Second Sight, uh, Peter Graphic told me to look for that and get it. It's on my list. I haven't found it in the wild yet. Every time I'm out, I search for it. I was able over the weekend to pick up a cart inbox Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Tournament Fighters on the Sega Genesis. I saw that. I have a loose card of it, but to have a complete in-box, that's awesome. Like, like I, I saw that, and I was like, that's very cool. Because as a kid, I didn't get a chance to play Tournament Fighters. I, I only played it on Super Nintendo. And I can tell you right now, being a Super Nintendo game. fan, the Genesis is harder but I like it more. Yeah, it's a different game. It's that a completely cool different game. It. Each version, the NES version, was different from the Super Nintendo version, which was different from the Genesis version. Konami made sure to make a different game for each one of them. That, that and Castlevania are pretty much the only series that I am going to hunt down and have, even though Peaches and I looked at Symphony of the Night value uh, today... And for the original PlayStation, it's steep. I'm looking at about 276 bucks. Yeah, and that's expensive. And it's a shame because it was one of those, when it was in its prime, it was a PlayStation Greatest Hits collection, meaning at one point it was nine, $19.99. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm, it was I'm, hoping, like a year or two. I'm hoping to stumble upon it at a garage sale or an estate sale or something that's like that. How I, that. That's what I said. That's one of those ones you got to hope to stumble I, across it somewhere because I noticed that game Spyro the Dragon is usually about 20 bucks, but I saw a PlayStation Greatest Hits version of it, you know, the one that has like the green thing on the side. Oh, yeah. It was twelve ninety nine for the same game. But it was because it was a Greatest Hits collection version that it was cheaper. Yep. Well, it's like uh, Nintendo, their GameCube. They've got their what, Player's Choice games that are uh-huh. a little bit cheaper, and the Black Label ones are more expensive. Right, they have some of those I am like happy, bestsellers. Yeah, I am happy with whatever I can get, just so I can have just a piece of my childhood that it's a game that I love, a game that I didn't get a chance to play, but I, I watched my friends play Castlevania growing up, and then, I mean, I really started buckling down and playing them. I've got uh, the Konami Castlevania collection on my PS4. I've got the Requiem collection with Rondo of Blood, hey, Symphony of the Night. Yeah, I have that. 
I've, I've got uh, PS3 and Xbox games. I'm working on uh, Game Boy games. Uh, so I, I guess the point I that I am getting I don't have across. I Castlevania games in my collection at all. Like, the, the, outside of, uh, I got Symphony of Night and Rondo of Blood on PlayStation. And I got them all emulated, but I don't think I have any original copies of any of them because I know 3 tends to be steep. Uh, Dracula X for Super Nintendo is over a hundred bucks. There's some that I don't have because they cost a little more, but I know the original Castlevania is kind of is pretty cheap. Yeah, I think Bloodlines on Genesis carton box, you're looking at about three hundred bucks. But my point is, when you find something that you enjoy, seek it out, do it with passion. Do it for the love of it. That's right. Forget I have more games than this person. Yeah, have fun. The the whole thing that I like to promote through the podcast and everything is shared experiences and memories. And when you have an experience, that's great. It really is. But it doesn't mean much unless you can share it with people that share your same passion. And that's one of the reasons why I love chatting with Ultra Golden Ant. Uh, the gaming power-ups, Peter Graphic, Aaron Gograd. I'm so excited to come on here. <laughs> I mean, everybody that has been on this show, uh, if you like good gaming conversations, good posts, go go drop them a follow. Uh, Definitely. Like, you follow me. As long as you're not a bot, you follow me, I'll follow you back. And Last is like, hey, interact, let's talk. Exactly. I, I was just going to say, and that opens the door for discussion. It might not be, you know, he, he might post something on, you know, a game that he picks up at a gaming convention and you're like, ah, I'm not big on that game. But the next game might be the one where you're like, holy crap. I remember playing that when I was a kid. Like, I think you and I first started talking because I posted images of me playing Mighty Final Fight. Yep. Yeah. I, when I was talking about how. It was a beat 'em up that kind of pushed the limits of the eight of an eight bit system. And then you said, "Well, what about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2? And I'm like, "Yeah, that's another one." Which is still the best Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, yeah. It's better than the arcade. <laughs> oh, don't try that. <laughs> look, look, you put the poll up, and everybody said arcade. A bunch well, of smart people said arcade. Well. I mean that that's just one poll. We'll have to do it again when when I can have more. Oh, uh, <laughs> trying to get a recount, huh? <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to uh to kind of close us up to give our listeners the the end of the story. I mean, what it really came down to is with the the gaming crash. I think in. 85 yeah 85 atari kind of really disbanded uh divided the company they were just weak yeah they yeah, it was one of those things where people kept buying the name and that's why games kept coming out for it but they nope. just couldn't no longer in the console market no longer trying to be number one they're just still trying to stay relevant and stay afloat well they claimed they were coming back to the console market with the Atari VCS, 
but they, you know they have a data Kickstarter out and everything. But there have been some claims that that Kickstarter or that the that the system's not coming. I don't know. There have been a lot of negative things about it. Well, one of these days we will kind of wrap up this section of the education of gaming with the Atari Jaguar and. That is really officially oh, the nail in the coffin. Yeah, we'll, for we'll the have Atari to get console. into that. You know, even though the Atari Jaguar, that's more a part of guys. I want to do a ninety series at some point where we talk about the Bit Wars. You could talk about the Jaguar there. Oh, we are going to have to. We have been yeah. talking about the, the Bit 90s. Wars. Yeah, the, the Bit when the when we when we talk about the Bit Wars and. You know, people like me who are Team Sega against those Team Nintendo people. And then we talk about some of the other systems that were around at the time, like the Atari Jaguar, like the TurboGrafx-16 and the Panasonic 3DO. There's a, there was a lot out there as part of this whole bit war stuff. There's more to it than people probably think. Unless, unless they've done the research, they're, they're just needing to be informed right because yeah the crash was a was just a fascinating story and it showed how video games nearly got snuffed out before they even got before they even started before they could reach their potential yeah and where where would we be right now if the crash wouldn't have happened and if nintendo wouldn't have been the savior that's true yeah it's one of the things where it's it's strange to think about that where Nintendo ended up being the ones that had the right combination of how to revive console gaming and even how PC gaming has continued to thrive. Like, my one brother, my one younger brother, Tyler, is one of those who will tell you, well, you should get into PC gaming, get into Steam, it's so much better, blah, blah, blah. Maybe someday, but I don't know. It seems like it's way too much equipment just to play some video games. That's exactly how I feel. I've I've been told that Steam is great for indie games. You'll get some of the best indie platformers on Steam. Uh That's what I've been told. I mean, I'm a Mac guy, so I don't want to have to buy a PC just a game, a couple games. Yeah, and like like when I see people like, look at my awesome PC gamer setup, I'm like, that looks like a lot of equipment. That looks like a couple paychecks. I just want to plug and play. Exactly. Well, seriously, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for for taking the time to finally thank you for having me. Wrap this up. It has been a pleasure, and we That's will it. we will talk to you. I I think we ought to do something on more Ninja Turtles here shortly. Uh, we yeah, absolutely. You just let me know when, and uh, we'll we'll get into it. Maybe at some point we can start talking about some of these game manufacturers overall, like Konami and Data East and all these folks. I actually have something coming down the pipeline on that because of bad dudes. And I'm into bad dudes because of you. That sounds really real. I can't wait. We're going to talk about bad dudes. I'm excited. And when I talk about, yeah, because I. I don't want to get too much into it, guys. Um, you know where to find me, Ultra Golden Ant. That's my name on Instagram. That's my name on Twitter. That's my name on PlayStation Network. 
Well, right on, everybody. Go check him out. Uh, go let him know what what your favorite fact from th- this series. I mean, like I said, there's two episodes. One started way back in January, and then like January twenty seventh, I want to say. Yep, it was almost exactly six months ago. So we are going to try. Uh, life has slowed down quite a bit, so we are going That's to try true. to start wanna, doing more of this. Yes, and if you want to get it together, go back to that one, listen to that episode, and then listen to this episode. It yeah. all fits together like a puzzle. And then, like I said, let me know what you think of the quality of the podcast. Seriously, I can't thank my patrons enough for helping to get me the equipment. And then I finally found the the combination to, I think, make it sound pretty decent. So thank you to everyone and anyone who supports. If you want to support Patreon, uh, we're going to hopefully try to get with some other people and we're going to do some exclusive content just on there. It might get a little salty. So if you're not into like real gaming situations as adults, because rage quit is real. Uh, it <laughs> might not be for you, but if you're interested, uh, hit up patreon.com. I think it's forward slash grab life by the controller. And uh, I mean, anywhere from a dollar to, I think if you give 50 bucks, I will uh, doodle you up. Uh, that sounded weird, but it's supposed to sound like a doodle you up something uh, and send it to you, uh, you know, so you have a Donnie Archer podcast art piece that you can hang in your game room. So if you're interested, check it out. If you need more details, find us on Instagram, check out my bio. There's a link tree and uh, yeah, we're going to wrap it up for this episode. So thank you to everyone who listens and all the support, but we out. All right. Good night. Peace. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is this week's episode. I hope you not only enjoyed it, but I hope you learned something that you didn't know. I know diving into all the information that I have, I found out so much stuff that I didn't know before, that I had no idea went on. Like I said earlier, to find out that in Japan this was known as the Atari Shock, that was something brand new to me. So... Let us know what you think. We would love to hear from you. We would love to have you follow us on Instagram, on Twitch, on Twitter. Twitter. It is all about video gaming. Uh, feel free to check us out. Grab Life by the Controller or GLTBC on Twitter. And let's keep the gaming conversation going. I hope everyone enjoys has some great gaming memories and experiences and we will chat with you next time peace